All right, if you have a Bible this morning, find Matthew chapter 20. We have come to the end, not of parables in general, but of our study of parables. We've spent the summer looking at some of these familiar stories that Jesus told. We've talked about good Samaritans, and we've talked about mustard seeds and hidden treasure and just about everything in between. And this morning, we get to talk about my favorite parable. And the reason that I saved it for the very end is just because I wanted to end with my favorite. There's really no rhyme or reason to it other than that. It's a story that when I read it, every time I read it, even when I was reading it this morning, I thought, I need to hear this story. I need to hear what Jesus is saying over and over and over and over again. Because when I read this story, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, I get a little bit uncomfortable. I sort of squirm in my theological seat. And if I'm just really honest with you, okay, just dropping the preacher stuff and the, the spiritual stuff, if I'm really honest, when I read this story, it pretty much makes me want to scream at Jesus. And I'll tell you in a little bit what it, what it makes me want to scream, but it's my favorite parable. There's an outline in the bulletin. If you like to follow along, you can do that on your outline. By now you know, if you've been here the last several weeks, that a parable is a story taken from real life that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. It's our working definition of parables. And the stuff of parables is usually pretty common. You know, the, the, the stuff that makes up these stories is fathers and sons and journeys to far-off lands or plants growing in a garden, just sort of everyday common things that Jesus' audience would be familiar with. But as we've seen many times in these parables, there's a twist, meaning it's like a familiar story and you're sort of rocking along and you think you know where the story is going and you sort of have an expectation of how it might resolve in the end. And then Jesus puts a twist on it and he just says something and he frames it in a way that you don't see coming. And usually when you find that twist, you found the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate. And the parable we're going to look at this morning certainly has a twist at the end. Before we get there, let's talk about the context. The parable of the workers in the vineyard is bracketed by the idea that the first will be last and the last will be first. So if you have your Bible open, you can look at Matthew 19, verse 30, and we read these words, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then you jump through, you see there's the parable, the laborers or the workers in the vineyard, and you come all the way down to verse 16, and it's not word for word the same, but it's pretty close. Jesus says at the end, the last will be first and the first last. It doesn't take a textual scholar or a Bible scholar or any kind of scholar to realize that when he says this word at the beginning, says these words at the beginning, and then he tells a story, and then he says the exact same words, that the story in the middle somehow illustrates what he's driving at when he says the first will be last and the last will be first. You know as well as I do that a preacher could take those words and twist them in a million different directions. I remember growing up, our church, uh, when I was really little, we had RAs. Some of you guys were in RAs. And we would go to RA camp at the West Texas campgrounds, which is the ugliest campground you've ever seen in your life. It's worse than Circle Six, I promise you. It's so ugly. I love Circle Six, by the way. Those guys are great. I love Circle Six. But it is an ugly campground we went to. And we would go out there, and if you were the new guy in RAs, 
whenever they would call, it's time to line up and eat the first meal, the first night you were there, bunch of knucklehead boys, you ran and elbowed and pushed to get up to the front of the line, and you were kind of wondering why the big guys were just sitting down, and every year it was the same thing over and over. You line up first, and then the RA leader stands up, whoever was in charge, and says, you know... Jesus says the first will be last and the last first. So we're going to switch the line around here. And then the rest of the week, it's a fight to get to the back of the line, right? You're elbowing to get to the very end. Look, you can come up with all sorts of little hokey explanations, illustrations, theories about what Jesus is talking about. If you really want to know what Jesus means when he says the first will be last and the last will be first... Just read the story right in between the two times when he said it. And this is the parable, and it helps you make sense of it. You also need to know that the immediate context of this parable is Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus and the rich young ruler. You can find it at the end of Matthew 19. We're not going to read it. We're going to look at a few verses. I just want to review the story so you remember in your mind this interaction. Jesus is hanging with the disciples, and this very promising prospect for their group, right? This is the kind of guy that when he comes to your church on a Sunday morning, you want everyone to speak to him. You want them to be nice to him. He's popular. He's influential. He has power. He has money. You say, this is the kind of guy we want. This guy walks up to Jesus and he says, teacher, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him, and they sort of have this back and forth about, well, you should just obey God's commands, I guess. And he says, yeah, 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 I've done all that. What else do I need to do? And it lands with Jesus looking at this man who had a whole lot of money and who loved his money. And Jesus says, I tell you what you need to do. He's not speaking to every one of us, but he's speaking to this rich young ruler. And he says, you need to sell everything that you have, give it to those who need it, and you need to come walk around with me. You need to get rid of this money that is really your functional God, get it out of the way, and then you can come and follow me. And Matthew tells us that this rich young ruler, looking Jesus in the eye, asking him what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, here's Jesus' answer. Then he turns away, and he walks away sad because he had great wealth. And the disciples are sort of thinking, well, that was a waste. Way to welcome a new guy into the fold. You just ran him off. We would have taken half his stuff. You didn't have to tell him to sell all his stuff. I mean, they're frustrated. And Jesus turns around and he looks at the disciples. This is while the rich young ruler is in process of walking away. I mean, you can, you can see the dust rising from his feet as he walks off. And Jesus says, how hard it's going to be for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Let me tell you how hard it's going to be. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And I'm just telling you, this is not, you're not going to find this in Matthew's gospel, but you can kind of read between the lines and figure it out. When Jesus said that, when he said it's going to be harder for the rich to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. When he said that, the disciples' heads collectively almost exploded. Like, they went into full panic mode. Because in their worldview, they looked around and they said, if that guy has a lot of money, it's because God likes him. And if God likes him, it's because he's a good person and God has blessed him with all that stuff. They're sort of in the mindset of Job's buddies, 
right? If you're a good person, God's going to take care of you and he's going to give you lots of stuff. That's sort of the way they think. And so they're looking at this guy with lots of stuff and they say, well, God must really like you, which means you must be a really good person. And Jesus says, you don't have a chance to enter the kingdom. How in the world are we going to get in? Like their heads are totally spinning. And so after the rich young ruler walks away, the disciples are left struggling with questions about salvation. If he's not going to make it, how are we going to make it? And just look at Peter's question, right? you got to love Peter. Sometimes he says some really stupid things, and sometimes he makes really good points. And this one is a little bit of both. Look at verse 27. They say, who can be saved? Verse 25 Jesus says, it's impossible with man, but with God all things are possible, meaning no one can be saved rich, anybody. I mean, no one can do it on their own. It can only happen through God. And Peter says, verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter's kind of just listening to Jesus, and he's watching this whole thing unfold, and he's trying to kind of add the numbers up, and he's saying, okay, okay. Rich young ruler, Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. You can have eternal life. And he just walks away from it. He, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Walks away sad because he loves his money so much. He refuses. And then Peter says, you know, I, I, don't, I never had as much as this rich young ruler, but I, I did walk away from my hometown. And I did walk away from my family. And he looks around at James and John and Matthew and some of the other guys, and he says, you know, these guys walked away from their businesses, their livelihood. They walked away from careers that would have made them a whole pile of money. And Peter says, okay, Jesus, just want to make sure you know, like, we did what you just asked the rich young ruler to do. You told him to leave all that other stuff behind and to follow you and he didn't want to do it but Jesus I just want to make sure you know that we did it we did what you asked us to do we left our nets on the shore and we're following after you we didn't leave as much as this rich young ruler would have left but we've done it Jesus goes on to talk to Peter and he says look I assure you that nothing you've sacrificed for me and my kingdom will go unpaid. In fact, Jesus sort of goes above and beyond that, and he says, I assure you that in the end, when you see the reward that I have prepared for you, you're going to look back on all the things that you left behind, and you're not going to feel like you made a sacrifice at all. You're going to feel like you're coming out on the right end of this deal. And there's Peter and the other guys just sort of scratching their collective heads, saying, what just happened here? This guy came to Jesus. He wanted eternal life. He had a ton of money. We could have used that money. Jesus basically sent him packing, and when he walked away sad, Jesus didn't even chase him down and try to negotiate. He just let him walk. And then Peter thinks about it, and he says, but, but we did what the rich young ruler refused to do, and Jesus says, I'm going to pay all of that back. There's going to be rewards you can't even imagine. And in the end, you're going to realize you never even made a sacrifice. And it's on the heels of all that, while all this is processing in their brains, that Jesus says, Matthew 19.30, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then he tells this story that we're about to read, and he ends it with, The last will be first, and the first last. 
This is the big idea. This is the one thing you can't miss in this parable. Jesus is trying to say, God is no man's debtor. God doesn't owe anyone anything. And when you put it in context, you realize why Jesus would want to make that point. He just promised Peter and the twelve amazing rewards. Peter, I know you left everything, and I've got something amazing prepared for you. It's going to be greater than anything else you've sacrificed. I'm going to be square with you, and then some. You're going to come out ahead. And Peter, you know Peter, he's like you and me. The wheels start turning, and he starts thinking, oh, he's got all this stuff prepared for me. It's going to be so much better than what I've left behind. I know what I left. This is going to be so great. And Jesus says, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Before you start bean counting, before you start your little tally marks and your, you know, your little notes to make sure that we get square, let me just remind you of this, Peter. The first will be last and the last first. And he tells this story that is just shocking in the twist that it presents. And the twist in the story is intended to say to Peter and to you and to me, God doesn't owe anyone anything. Peter, you may have left a lot of stuff behind and there may be a reward for you, but God doesn't owe it to you. God is no man's debtor. Look at the parable and let's read it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to, said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Does that ring a bell? Right? You can't just take those words at the beginning and the end and make them say whatever you want them to say. Jesus is telling you exactly what he means. You start with the last and up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive much more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray. 
Father, we pray for ears to hear what Jesus is saying. We pray that you would guard us from running wild with the words of Jesus and making them trivial or making them say whatever it is that we want them to say. And Father, we pray that we would hear this parable, that we would see truth in it, and that we would understand what Jesus is is telling us about you and about our relationship with you. We ask for your wisdom and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story is pretty straightforward. There's a guy who owns a vineyard. It's harvest time or working time and he needs some guys to work in his vineyard. And so he goes to town and in shifts he starts to hire these guys. And I'll just put the time up. The Jews spoke in terms of early morning, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, eleventh hour. We speak in time or in terms of a.m., p.m. So at 6 a.m. he goes out early in the morning and he finds these guys in you know the town square they need something to do and he says look I will hire you you come work for me for the day and I'll pay you one denarius that's just the standard wage the going rate for uh, regular labor in Jesus's day that wouldn't have been way more than they expected that wouldn't have been like he was trying to cheat them for the work that was just the fair wage the going rate so they say great we need a job that's the going rate we'll work and they go to work and then At 9 a.m., about three hours later, he goes out, and he does the same thing at noon, and he finds some more guys in town. And the detail is interesting. He doesn't say, I'm going to pay you this much. He just says, I'm going to give you what's right. Right? You didn't come out with the guys early in the morning. You didn't get a full day in. But you come out and work, and I'm going to give you what's right. And then he does the same at the ninth hour at 3 o'clock. And then here's this popular phrase. Maybe you've heard it thrown around. The 11th hour. It's at 5 o'clock. And he goes to town. And here's some dudes just hanging out. And he says, what in the world are you doing? I said, well, nobody came to hire us. He says, well, I was here at 6 a.m. I didn't see you, and I was here all throughout the day, but here you are, and here I am, and I need some more guys, so why don't you go out to the vineyard too? So they go. The Old Testament law said that the owner of a piece of property had to pay his laborers at the end of the day. You can read that in Leviticus 19.13. The basic idea is don't let the sun set on the guy that you owe money to. If he's worked for you that day, you got to pay him. Remember, they didn't have banks. They didn't have debit cards. They didn't have pantries stocked full of food like we do, uh, we do today. They worked for the day. They got paid for the day. They went to the village that evening, and they bought food to eat for the next day. So not to pay somebody their wages would be to make them go hungry. And the Old Testament law said you can't do that. So this guy is a a good landowner. He's doing the right thing. And he says, look, it's time to settle up with everybody. And I'd like you to start with the 11th hour crew. We're going to work our way backward. So you can just almost picture this in your mind, right? I don't know if he sat at a table with all these uh, denariuses or denarii piled up on top of it, but he's there and he's got all this money and it's time to pay out everybody. And the guys who worked one hour, an hour, get paid for an entire day's work. You realize that's about the equivalent of you working one month and getting paid for an entire year. Not a bad gig, right? These guys are slapping high fives. They're throwing knuckles. They're patting each other on the back. They're so excited. I can't believe it. We're going to work for this guy every day. 
And then we start working through the line. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't really mention the guys in the middle, but he mentions the guys who came out at 6 a.m. And they're standing in the back. They're sort of looking over the shoulders, right? And they're saying, how, how much, what did he just pay them? Those guys worked one hour and they got a denarius and they've totally forgot the deal they had with the landowner, right? Remember at the beginning of the day, he said, you come work for me, I'll pay you a denarius. And they said, we're all in for a denarius. But they're looking at this and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, do the math. One hour, one denarius, we've been out here since 6 a.m. You know exactly what those guys at the back of the line are thinking. They're thinking, mama's going to get some new shoes. And I'm going to Sam's to get that 80-inch TV right up in the front. And I may even put a little bit in the college fund. This is the best day of work I've ever had. We are about to cash in. This is awesome. And they get up to the table. And he gives them one coin. And they sort of look at that coin. You just can picture them, right? And like the other hand goes back out. And they say, well... But the guys who worked an hour got paid a denarius. And the text is just kind of general. Look at verse 11. It says, on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. I don't know exactly how you would say it in Hebrew. My Hebrew was never very good. My Greek was a little bit better, but it's not very good anymore. So I don't know how you say it in Greek. Let me just say it in English, okay? That's not fair you know just like me when you read this story you get to that part of the story and those are the three words that pop into your brain just like that that's not fair it doesn't say that that's what they said but that's basically what they said right verse 12 these last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us we bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We have been out here since 6 a.m. Paying them the same as us is not fair. And look what the master says to them, verse 13. This is amazing. He replied to one of them, You ingrate. You malcontent. You mouthy worker, know your place and be... He doesn't say any of that, right? He says, friend, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? All they can think is that's not fair. They've fallen into this trap of they think that they're entitled to something they're not entitled to. This is a parable about the dangers of spiritual entitlement. And it's something that plagues the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever lived, who lives now, or who will ever live. I don't think I have to tell you this, but we live in a society that really struggles with entitlement. You see it all the time. 
The mindset today is I am entitled to a certain amount of fill-in-the-blank income. I am entitled to have a certain kind of job. I went to school. I jumped through the hoops. I got the piece of paper. I deserve to have this kind of job. I have it coming to me. I'm entitled to a certain level of education. And not only a certain level of education, but I'm entitled to certain grades in that education. Talk to somebody who teaches at a high school or a university and ask them about the conversations they have with students and their parents complaining about the grades that their students earned, their kids earned. You earned that D, but I'm entitled to an A. I want extra credit. I want to do it again. I don't think your grading was fair. It's entitlement. A culture that has given itself over to this entitlement mentality is a culture in decline. It's bad news. It's really bad news. And I hope you see the danger of it in our society. And I hope you're doing your best to raise your kids and your grandkids not to give themselves over to this entitlement nonsense. And as dangerous as political entitlement may be or economic entitlement or educational entitlement may be, I have a serious warning for you. Spiritual entitlement is far more toxic and far more deadly. The idea that God owes you something is a deadly idea. And it's an idea that we all struggle with. All of us. Most of us, some of us, are not so brash as to just come out and say, God owes me X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. But talk to somebody who had X, Y, and Z and then lost it. Almost regardless of how spiritually mature they are. Almost. This is not universal. But it's almost universally true. We start to wrestle with questions like, why me? Why would you take that from me, God? Why would you not give that to me, God? You can fill in the blank with family, or you can fill in the blank with your health, or you can fill in the blank with a certain number of years on this earth, or you can fill in the blank with money. You can fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill it in with. But when you have this mindset with God, God, you owe me something, or you don't get that thing, and you turn around and you question God, and you say, God, why didn't you give me that? Or why did you take that from me? You're treading on really thin ice. It's spiritual entitlement. And Jesus knows as he's looking Peter in the eye, it's about to be a struggle in his heart. You remember the question Peter said? If the rich guy can't get into heaven, who can get into heaven? Jesus says, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Peter says, wait a minute, wait a minute. All things are possible. Gotcha. But wait a minute. We just did what that guy refused to do. We just left everything three years ago to follow you, and he refused to do it. So what's in it for us now? And Jesus says, Peter, you have no idea what's in it for you. It's going to be so great. It's going to be amazing. If you've left homes or lands or family or whatever, it's going to be paid back a thousandfold in the life to come in the kingdom. It's going to be amazing. And he can see the wheels turning in Peter's mind. Or maybe it would be better to say he can see the wheels turning in Peter's heart. And Peter's thinking, I got a lot of good stuff coming to me then. 
Because he's counting. I left this and this and this, and I'm going to get it back. God owes me. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Time out. Peter, you need to understand the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. To which Peter probably said, what in the world does that mean? Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he says, well, let me tell you a story. And he's warning him about the danger of spiritual entitlement. I think that you and I ought to hear this warning on at least three levels, and we'll move through these quickly. Number one, it was a warning to the Jews. You realize that everyone standing around listening to Jesus tell this story was Jewish. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that in the beginning, God chose Abraham, and he chose to work through this man, Abraham. And it wasn't because Abraham was anything great. Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan. And God said, I'm going to work through you. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to bring the Messiah through this line. I'm choosing you, Israel, and I'm setting you apart to be different. You are my people, and I'm going to be your God, and we're going to have a unique relationship. And over time, Israel forgot the part where God just came to Abraham and said that, and they started to think, well, God chose us because we're way better than the Edomites or the Ammonites or any of the other ites out there. We're the best, and that's why God loves us. Jesus knows this is about to be an issue when he sends these Jewish men out to make disciples, Matthew 28, of who? All the nations. And he knew these guys are going to struggle when it comes time to make disciples of all nations, and they're going to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, we've been out here since 6 a.m., We've been with you the whole time. And now, all of a sudden, at the 11th hour, you're going to bring a bunch of Gentiles in and give them the same reward we get? How in the world is that fair? And Jesus says, but the first will be last, and the last will be first. God doesn't owe you anything, Peter, James, John, Jewish guys. He doesn't owe you anything just because your DNA comes from Abraham. He picked Abraham in the very beginning while he was worshiping idols. You're not entitled to any of it. It's all his grace to you. Secondly, I think it was a warning to the disciples. To the disciples. And this is what I mean. These guys had, it's true, they had done what the rich young ruler refused to do. When Peter piped up and said, hey, we've done what he didn't do, Jesus didn't say, you did not. I mean, it was true on the surface. They had made great sacrifice to follow Jesus. And at this point, the crowds were following Jesus, but they were there for miracles. They didn't believe the truth about Jesus. And Peter and these guys are saying, hey, we're really in on this thing. We're all in with you. And Jesus wants them to understand, look, after my resurrection, you need to know that some of these people who laughed at you, some of these people like the rich young ruler, these people who just walked away, some of the people you read about in John 6 where they turn away from Jesus because the things he said were too difficult, some of those people are going to turn back around and they're going to be followers. They're going to be Christians. They're going to be disciples. And just because you were a year or two years or three years ahead of the game with these folks doesn't mean you're going to look down your nose at them when the light bulb goes off and God draws them. You don't have any claim you don't, on God. You don't have any entitlement with God just because you have followed me this whole time. All of it has been a gift of God's grace to you. Lastly, I think it's a warning to all Christians. It's a warning for us. 
It doesn't matter how many years you've walked with Jesus. Did you grow up in church? Did you start off in the nursery? doesn't matter how long you've been a member of this church or any other church. The years that you've piled up following Jesus don't entitle you to anything. How crazy that we have the same mentality sometimes as Christians as the guys in this story. Think, well, that guy just got saved a couple years ago. You know how long I've been following Jesus? It doesn't matter. You're both saved by grace. You're both totally undeserving. And the master can do with what he wants with his grace. Don't begrudge his generosity. So he's warning the Jews. He's warning the disciples He's warning Christians. He's warning us about the danger of spiritual entitlement. So the question becomes, when we hear this warning, how do we fight this in our hearts? How do we fight against the danger of thinking that God owes us something, that God owes us anything? Let me give you a few suggestions. Number one, you got to understand the nature of God. The nature of God. And I'd like you to, if you're filling in the blanks, you can fill the blank in. And I'd like you just to flip to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. If you hit the book of Psalms, you went too far, so go back the other direction. Isaiah chapter 6. It's a familiar story. It's one that we talk about often. It's so critical for our understanding of who God is and who we are. I don't even want to pay attention to Isaiah in this passage. I just want you to pay attention to the angels, and I want you to pay attention to God. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. It's a type of burning angel. The word literally means burning, and they're so close to the presence of God. Isaiah just, when he names them, he names them the burning ones, the seraphim. They have six wings, And with two they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet, and with two they're flying. And they call out to one another, and the only thing they say back and forth, back and forth, back and forth is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You understand that there is no sin that separates these seraphim from God. Not once have they rebelled or crossed the line or transgressed what he's called them to do or who he's called them to be. Never, ever, ever. They're perfect, sinless beings. And they find themselves in God's presence and they humble themselves. They don't even dare to look at God. They cover their eyes. They cover their feet as a sign of humility in the Bible. And all they sing about, the only thing they can think about all day long, every day, forever is holy, holy, holy. God is holy and we're not. You think, wait a minute, the angels aren't holy? These angels realize that even though sin doesn't separate them from God, their creatureliness does. The creature can never do anything to have some sort of claim on the creator. There is nothing a creature can do, human, angelic, animal, anyone. There is nothing a creature can do to ever put God in your debt, ever, ever, ever. He gave you life. He sustains your life. There is nothing you can do so that he then owes you. And these seraphim recognize that. So you've got to understand the nature of God. Secondly, and this is obvious, you've got to understand the nature of sin. The Bible says that every one of the creatures that he made in his image, human beings, me and you and all the folks like us, 
every one of us have rebelled against God. And if you don't know Romans 6.23, you can look it up. Many of you are familiar with it. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Remember what the angels were singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. When his holiness goes on display, it's called his glory. And Paul says to the church in Rome, we've fallen short of that, of his holiness, of his glory. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against him. And the wages of our sin, he says, is death. The wages of your sin is death. If you want to talk about what God owes you, it's not a house or health or number of years on earth or so much money in your bank account. What he owes you and me is instant and eternal death. That's it. That's the whole list of what God owes you. That's the whole list of what you have coming to you from God left to yourself. Instant, immediate, and eternal death. The wages of our sin, what we have earned from our sin, is death. So we remind ourselves who God is. We remind ourselves about sin. And number three, number three we understand the nature of grace. Grace. Fill that one in and then flip over this time to the right, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, many of you have memorized these verses. Verse 8 and 9 say this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. None of this is your own doing. It's the gift of God. The grace isn't your own doing. The faith isn't your own doing. It's not yours. It's not a result of your works. So that no one may boast. You come to Ephesians 2 and you realize, I don't, I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve eternal life. God has given it to me freely of his grace. What he owes me is death. And in his grace, he's given me life. So we remind ourselves of the nature of grace. And lastly, we understand the nature of our obedience. You've got to wrap your mind around the, the true nature of obedience. And if you're still over in Ephesians, maybe you can just flip a few pages to the right to the book of Philippians where we just spent several months. And you can look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul's talking to saved people, people who have received God's grace. They've experienced it. Philippians 2, 12 he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you say, aha, this is where we have to earn it. This is where we get square with God. We settle up and we work it out with fear and trembling. Verse 13, you're wrong. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even your ability to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling is a result of God in his grace working in you to change your will and to change the way that you live your life. 
Your obedience to God doesn't earn you anything with him. Why? Paul says it in Philippians 2. Because he's the one working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think what Jesus is trying to say to Peter and the disciples and to us is that his kingdom is a sort of a topsy-turvy kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world where you earn your way or you merit your way. It's a kind of kingdom where the unworthy are rewarded. It's the kind of kingdom where those who think that they're worthy aren't even included. It's the kind of kingdom where those who are humble and those who mourn and those who are poor in spirit are actually blessed, not cursed. It's the kind of kingdom where the first are last and the last is first. It's not the kind of kingdom where you can have any claim on the king thinking that he owes you anything. But it's the kind of kingdom where you realize everything that I have is a result of his grace to me. If you think about it, that's exactly what we're celebrating when we take the Lord's Supper. No one comes to the Lord's table, to the bread and the cup, saying to God, Man, I have had a great week, God. I have been so good this week, and I am worthy to take this. I haven't messed up. I've controlled my tongue. I've been good. I haven't been ugly to people. I didn't honk at anyone driving down university this week, and I've just been so, I have been so good, and I can take the Lord's Supper today. If that's you, please don't take the Lord's Supper. If you sit here this morning and you think you deserve to take it, you're worthy to take it, please don't, because you're not. The Lord's Supper is for people who are part of Jesus' kingdom, people who can acknowledge, I'm not worthy to participate. I'm not worthy to take it. I've done nothing to deserve this. It's not about me. It's about your grace in my life. It's not about you coming and eating a piece of bread and drinking the cup and saying, God, I'm so good. It's about you eating the bread saying, God, thank you that the body of Christ bore my sins so that I don't have to bear the penalty. It's about you taking of the cup, not saying, God, I deserve this or I've been good this week, but it's about you saying, God, thank you for the blood of Christ that washes me clean and makes me new and gives me life when all that you owe me is death. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you've obeyed his command to be baptized, we want to invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us, not as a celebration of our goodness, but a celebration of what Christ has done for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you take a few minutes while we pass out the elements, while we read the scriptures, while we take of the bread and the cup, and think about your relationship with God and whether you may be trying to earn your way with God or whether you're acknowledging that you can't and you might need to trust in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to bow and we're going to pray together. Father, we stop this morning and we remind ourselves of the grace that you've showed us in Christ. Father, we are unworthy. And we acknowledge with the workers in this parable that you are free to dispense your grace as you see fit. And those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus and trust in Jesus, we acknowledge that we have no claim on you We just simply rejoice that you've been gracious to us. 
Father, as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, we look back and we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Not because we were good, but because we weren't. Father, we celebrate the cross and we are mindful of the resurrection and we even look forward to the coming of your kingdom where we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup with Christ in his kingdom. Father, be honored as we spend a few moments reflecting on your grace and your mercy in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.